0: Please join me again in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 5. I want us to go back to verse number 11 to really set the context again before we move forward. I know I really went at it uh, last session in order to emphasize how important it is that Christians grow up in their relationship to the Word. Uh, The author of Hebrews is quite frustrated that some of the people in his target audience were Jewish believers in Jesus that, upon seeing persecution against those of that mindset, thought that it might be good to just kind of back up into their Jewishness and avoid the persecution. And so the author of Hebrews is like, no, no, Uh, this is is what we're supposed to be prepared for, Uh, the reality that Jesus is everything. He is the centerpiece of the story, and we should know this if we know the word. And he is clearly frustrated as a leader in the church uh, that not everybody has grown up the way they should. And so I share that frustration as a longtime preacher and teacher in the church. And so I've expressed that a little bit last session. Uh, there's a remedy to it and that is everybody needs to repent of being lazy in their relationship to Scripture and buckle down, soak it up, and become grown-ups, that can handle the word appropriately. So let's start with that context from Hebrews chapter five, verse number 11. About this, we have much to say. It, the topic was Jesus being high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is a little bit harder meat and potatoes sort of Bible teaching. So he says, about this, we have much to say, And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, which is just a a euphemism for you've gotten lazy in your study habits. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. So you ought to be the ones out there explaining these things to the younger ones. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. Oracles of God is just a fancy way of talking about Scripture. Basic principles, as I said last time, it's, we would say, one-two-threes, ABCs, primary colors, uh, the, the cardinal points on the compass, all the basics that we teach our kids in preschool and maybe as late as kindergarten. We expect them to master all these things. There are spiritual things, Bible things, that fall into that same sort of category of basic principles. He says, you need milk, not solid food. So your big baby's still on the bottle. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, the grown-ups, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Uh, I was emphasizing this idea we Christians need this sort of constant practice with God's Word. Uh, We need to spend time together studying and quizzing each other and making sure that we're all prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us of the hope that lies within us and we need to do it with respect toward God fear of God and we also need to do it with this humility this understanding that we're we're not the ones calling the shots we're just part of The process of getting other people told about the one who loved them and gave himself up for them. Now, that's where we finished last session. Chapter 6 is a continuation, though, of the same thinking. Verse 1 of chapter 6, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. So let's leave the ABCs, the one, two, threes, the primary colors, metaphorically, of Jesus Christ and go on to maturity. Let's focus on getting completely grown up in the faith. And then he enumerates some of the things that he considers to be the elementary doctrines of Jesus Christ or of Scripture itself. He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. So you remember at the very beginning of the gospel, the word went out first by John, then by Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent literally means, in the Greek language, change the way you think. Bring your thinking into the alignment of God's thinking. And the way you do that is by Scripture, by the way. Uh, When John was asked, uh, how, how are we supposed to demonstrate repentance? He gave pragmatic things. He says, if you have more than enough, share it with those that don't. If Uh, You have authority? Don't abuse that authority. That is the idea of repentance, is quit doing things your way and start doing things God's way. Repent from dead works, uh, which is all about doing things that don't have eternal worth. And, not lay again a foundation of faith toward God. Uh, Faith toward God is belief that God is. (laughs) That, That should not be something that people in the church are still wrestling with after years and years there. Or faith toward Jesus as the Christ. Those are such basic things that within a matter of weeks, let alone days, but weeks and certainly within months of first confessing that faith, that should already be far in the rearview mirror. That should be grounded heavy and hard already. Uh, verse number two, and instructions about immersions. It, it, it is literally the word uh, for baptisms, plural, Uh, And, of course, baptism is just the Greek uh, transliteration of the word that means immersion. And so we know that from the very beginning of the Jewish faith, they had ceremonial washings. Uh, Something happens to make you, quote, unclean, end quote. Uh, One of the procedures that you engaged in Uh, for being restored back to the community was to often be immersed, to be washed fully. Uh, When John the Immerser comes on the scene, how does he get his nickname? Because when he was out there telling these people, you need to repent, you need to change the way you're thinking, think like God wants you to think, and get ready for the coming kingdom, quit doing things your old way, the way that he had them demonstrate that was to go through a ceremonial immersion, to die to the old self and live to the new self, to be born again, as Jesus expresses it uh, when he's talking to Nicodemus. Uh, When Jesus comes along, he preaches that same thing, and he actually does engage in immersions of people. Uh, Now, he personally was not doing it hands-on. He was having his apostles do it, his disciples. But he was still orchestrating people going through this ceremony that represents, I'm starting fresh. Now, that's supposed to be basics. We should not have to still be talking about that stuff years and years into our Christian experience. Uh, How about the laying on of hands that he mentions here next? Uh, Laying on of hands was a ceremony of impartation, of of commission, of authority, of uh, responsibility. You laid your hands on those that were going to do jobs in the church. It could be deacons, deaconesses, uh, it might be the elders, the shepherds. Uh, You laid your hands on these folks in a public sort of ceremony to say, we're praying for these people and we are giving them this commission and everybody needs to appreciate what they're going to be doing from here on out. That's basic stuff. We shouldn't have to keep talking about that. Uh, That is part of the function of, from one generation to the next within the church, we need to commission the next group of leaders and workers, and we do it through the laying on of hands. And this one, this one here, is a big, uh, a big primary uh, thing. That's an A, B, C, one, two, three primary color sort of thing: the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, remember, Paul has to deal with people that seem to have problems with believing this. And he says, you've got to be kidding me. You can't really be a Christian unless you believe in the resurrection of the dead. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a key component of the gospel message itself. If you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, then you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is not something we need to be debating in the church. It's not something that we should still be trying to tell people that have been around in the church for 15, 20 years. How come you don't understand this yet? Let me explain it to you better. They should have already grown up in this. This is basic stuff and eternal judgment that every person will give an account to God, is fundamental to this concept of Scripture. Uh, Sin has consequences. That consequence is eternal separation from God. And if you don't get hooked in with salvation through the gospel, you will face that judgment. That's the reality. Jesus told the uh, Pharisees uh, at one point uh, that you study the Scripture to understand it, and yet it's these very Scriptures that talk of me, and you don't believe them. And guess what? Because you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. You will come into judgment. Uh, That is a primary basic teaching in the church. Now, I have to tell you, I end up teaching all of these things in detail often because I've discovered that a lot of people, no matter how long they've been in the church, still don't seem to be able to get their minds wrapped around some of these basics. And I'm not sure why that is. Uh, So, we in the church have got to get people past these basics and into the deeper stuff, like Melchizedek and his story, which we will eventually get to. Verse 3, this we will do if God permits. (laughs) If we can possibly do it, we'll get past the ABCs, 1, 2, 3s, primary colors, cardinal points on the compass. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Now, this is a topic here that will be a problem topic for some of you, and I might as well just make that clear uh, from the get-go. I am not a proponent of what is typically referred to as Calvinism. I believe that John Calvin had a lot of, um, of good things that he was driven by, but I think he got sidetracked on certain issues uh, and established some principles that were picked up by other people where he was just totally incorrect on, not the least of which is the idea that once you are saved, you are always saved. Uh, because that is definitely not what the Scripture teaches, and I have pointed out passage after passage after passage on that very topic. Uh, but he- here is the issue. Uh, this is what really started people down that wrong understanding. They believe that God is absolutely sovereign, meaning he's in charge, he calls the shots. And because they believe that, salvation is his choice. He decides who is saved and who is lost. And if you believe that, then once you are saved, you can't be lost again because God's the one that made that choice. So that's the logic, that's the thinking process that led to that point of Calvinism. But the reality from Scripture is this, that while God is in fact sovereign, he does not exercise his will over others universally. After all, the Scripture says that it is God's will that all come to salvation, all believe and come to salvation and be saved. And yet the Scripture teaches that not everybody will be saved. So it is clear that God doesn't get his way. Now, he could have. He could have forced it. But he doesn't. So this is the reality, and I want you to get your mind wrapped around this. While God is sovereign, he allows us to make our own free will choices. He He holds that as being a precious commodity for people to make up their own minds. He does not want a bunch of robots. He wants only those that want relationship in relationship with him. And so because of that, this section right here highlights how some people who have at one point in their life embraced salvation, clearly, have now walked away from it of their own free will. And that is a tragedy. And if it weren't for the grace of God, it is a tragedy from which they would be incapable of recovering. So this is what it says, verse number four. And in the Greek text here, it starts with the word, impossible, okay? Not possible. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. So the light has shined upon them. Jesus has shined upon them. Uh, It's interesting that in the second century of church history, this word enlightened actually gets used to describe people who have been immersed into the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, They had been illumined, if you will. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, uh, that would be salvation, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, so they've actually had the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, They have received not just simply the forgiveness of sin, but they've received the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. So they've had Bible study that they've enjoyed. They've loved it. And the powers of the age to come. So they've even tasted of this idea of the future, that one of these days Jesus will be back and the eternal kingdom will, Will be full blown and I'll be part of it. So these this all these phrases here describe people who were clearly saved. Clearly saved. Verse six and then have fallen away. Uh, the wording is actually fallen to the side. To restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So, when we put it all together, basically this is what he's saying. It is impossible for those that have felt all the reality of salvation to come back to repentance by crucifying Jesus all over again. And here's the connection to the book of Hebrews. Remember the target audience here. They were believers in Jesus originally, Jewish believers in Jesus, who were looking at the persecutions happening in Rome and in Italy, and they said to themselves effectively, I don't want to have to go through that. I don't want to have to die for Jesus. I don't want to have to be rough-housed because of my belief in Jesus, I am going to back up into my Jewishness. I'm going to back up into my previous connection to God. So they were basically backing away from the gospel. And if they are not willing to embrace the gospel, then they can't come back again. You see, if the reason they left is what needs to happen for them to come back, then it's not going to happen. That's why it's impossible. It's impossible to convince someone to come back to God through Jesus Christ if they say, but I don't want to come through Jesus Christ. You can't fix that. That's not workable. And so that is what the author of Hebrews is trying to explain here. If you're not willing to go to the wall for Jesus, you can't be saved. It's impossible. If you're not willing to deny self and confess him, then you can't have the Father. Uh, we The next set of letters that we will soon be in would be the John letters. And John will point out that you can't have the Father without the Son. It's a package deal. They come together. To deny Jesus is to deny the Father. And so chapter number six in Hebrews is a big shot across the bow for anyone that thinks they can be saved without Jesus. I I can be religious. I can have this faith that comes out of the Old Testament. I can have this faith that comes with the morality of the New Testament. As long as I don't have to name in the name of Jesus, I can still be saved. And the answer to that from the perspective of Scripture is, no, you can't. It's impossible because you need to understand the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember the Galatians 2.20 memory verse that I keep pushing on you. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in this body, I live for the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. We have to have Jesus, or we can't have God the Father. Verse number seven, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So that kind of takes you back to the four soils parable of Jesus, right? You've got the seed is the same being thrown out by the sower who is the same. Uh, Jesus is the sower, the seed is the word of God. It's the soil that the seed lands on that makes the determination as to whether or not there is a crop. And so here is the writer of Hebrews saying The land that produces a good crop is blessed by God. But, verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. If people, even those that received the word of God, and even responded to it to begin with, If they do not produce a crop of faith in Jesus Christ, then that puts them out of step with God the Father. And there will be a reckoning between him and them, eventually. Um, The burning here is used elsewhere uh, as a symbol of judgment. And so that's the way it should be taken. Now, having said all that, and we've only got about a minute and a half left, uh, we're now ready to do a little transition of positivity, uh, which all of us as leaders, we want to be able to do this. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he says, even though I'm having to be rough with you on this, I believe you will pay attention and will change attitudes. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So he's particularly focused on those that are not giving up the name of Jesus. Um, His his teaching is, has focused on those that might have already done that or might be toying with it, but his anticipation is the ones that are really going to read this are the ones that really want to stick with Jesus, and they just need encouragement to do that. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So basically, stick in there. Follow the leaders who have already shown you how to remain faithful.